This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. What is up, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, coming at you without my fantastic co-host, Adam Frommel, today. But I am super pleased to be joined by not only frequent guest, but I would say close friend of the podcast, Adam Spinella. He is a Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach and also a writer for Celtics blog. If you are not following him on Twitter already, please remedy that immediately at Spinella14, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-1-4. It's spelled exactly as it sounds, basically. Adam, how are you doing? Doing great, Dan. Thank you for having me on. It's it's always good to be back here, and uh, I know that whenever I arrive, I am the preeminent Adam on the podcast. Sorry, Mr. Frommel, but uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's funny because I called you Adam this time, and I think I, I call the other Adam, Adam too, on the podcast, but I call you both when I'm DMing you or texting you, but not Adam. Your spins to me, and from like way back in the NBA math days, and then I call him Fro. So th- there's almost no actual Adam in my book, even though th- there are those two Adams. I think it's just my girlfriend, my mother, and maybe one other person in this world that call me Adam. What do they call you? Everyone calls me Spins. You got it. Yeah. Oh, I thought I was unique with that. That's really disappointing. That's that's the brand these days. I think it's just the last name. It sticks. It's easy. I, I it is a cool nickname. So I won't I won't I won't penalize myself for unoriginality there because it's a fun nickname. But I did bring you on to talk about hoops because we're going. We've already seen some hoops via the scrimmages, and the Disney bubble is off and running. The regular season is going to tip off on this upcoming Thursday. Hopefully everyone's listening to this on a Monday or or a Tuesday. And so I thought it'd be good to go through the biggest question facing every NBA team inside the Disney bubble, like what they're trying to answer for the rest of the year. And we're going to do the remaining nine Eastern Conference teams. So so are you ready to, to get started here? Always ready, Dan. Let's do this. So we made the executive decision to go in reverse record order of the teams that are inside the Disney bubble. And that means that we're beginning with the Washington Wizards. What is your biggest question for them? And I hope it's the one that you texted me yesterday. (laughs) So uh, 
for those wondering, the question I asked Dan was why. <laughs> why? Um, for but, them in Phoenix, just why, and then we can move on. Right. Uh, now, the biggest question for me, I mean, you have to think about this in kind of a tiered layer in the whole Eastern Conference. There's really three teams that I think are main top contenders. There's three that are in that middle of the pack that are kind of jockeying for position in those like four through six seeds and, and potentially could make a run. And then there's those kind of six through nine teams that are uh, injury depleted or maybe just a few too many steps behind those top caliber tier, tier teams to make an impact. And I think Washington, with their record and the kind of injury depleted roster they have, they need to look at this process a little bit from a future perspective and see what they can gain long term into some of their guys. So the biggest question for me is trying to figure out what Rui Hachimura and Troy Brown can give them that resembles starters production. And Dan, I don't know if you have any thoughts on on those two guys and kind of their development or progression over the last year, but that's really what I'm watching with Washington. Yeah, that was my same question for them. Uh, it was basically, do they have a, it was more so a swing piece on this roster that maybe, do they get a performance from anyone that might help them figure out what goes on this offseason when Davis Bertans is a free agent and you're going to be dealing with the Bradley Beal trade stuff you know that John Wall is, is is going to come back next season and I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on uh, for Troy Brown Jr. for me I'm just I want to see them give him more pick and roll volume and just see how that ends up working out for Rui Hachimura though I'm very interested to see what you think of him because I was actually in preparation of this I was watching because it feels like a zillion years since I saw um he or the Wizards play and no that's me copying too I did not watch I think they've played one scrimmage so far I did not watch it but so I was going back and watching film on him, and he just looks, I don't want to say I feel like he has this great feel for the game, but there's so many aspects of his game that just look smooth. Uh, he was shooting almost 50% on pull-up twos before the All-Star break. Uh, he makes some of the normal rookie mistakes with the ball in his hand, where I feel like his dribble is too high or his handle is just not tight enough, um, and he needs to get used to NBA length, I think, on some of his passes. But then I watched... Um, some of the passes that he's throwing. I know he doesn't have the highest assist rate, but I feel like he's also making pretty good reads. And so I'm, I'm watching him and then even the decisions that he'll make in transition. And I just feel like there's an outline of a really good basketball player there. Yeah, he's he's kind of going to become that front court piece that's the kind of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, for lack of a better term. Like he's an above average passer and he has that good feel like you're talking about. His jump shot has really come along over the last two years and the thing that i love about hachimura is he's got that rebound and run potential like if you Mm. you look at what the raptors are doing that is providing them consistency in the post Kawhi type of format it's because pascal siakam is so good at grabbing a defensive rebound pushing it up the floor and either scoring in transition or making the right play and that's a really valuable skill in the modern nba i think hachimura can be that guy but like you talk about it is it consistency with him is it just there's something where you're always left wanting just a little bit more and hopefully he can be a focal point a little bit here in this bubble to come out of his shell and show us really what that ceiling can be for him he's definitely going to have to and i i do feel like this is always a reflexive response when the percentages are are so low but he's going to have to take and make more three-pointers i think to really make defenses respect his game and then you can get into situations where maybe you trust him in the half court to to handle the ball a little bit more 
Yep. And, and I think the same goes for Brown a little bit, too. He has to prove that he's going to be trusted with the ball in his hands because the one thing that Bradley Beal needs is someone to create shots for him. And, and I know there's hope that John Wall will be that guy um, you know, eventually, but he needs guys on the wings and in that front court position who can both make shots and facilitate a little bit. And hopefully that's Hachimura. Hopefully that's Brown, but they're two pretty important pieces for the long term just to develop and say, hey, what are they going to do in these two categories? And they just, it better be high volume, like while the Wizards are in Disney World. And so, you know, over those eight games, like, let's see the, like, I want to see uh, Rui taking like, t- like I don't know, 18 to 20 shots a game or something just along those lines. Maybe even yeah. ditto for Troy Brown at this point. And look, the Wizards are going to be an interesting team to watch for the next couple weeks because they, uh, if they, if we thought they were the worst defensive team in the NBA before all this, which they were <laughs> statistically, they, uh, oh boy, it's going to be interesting to watch here. I feel like the way 2020 has gone, we're going to end up having a play-in tournament for the eight seed in the East and then not the West somehow. That would just be the most 2020 outcome to the end of the regular season. Yeah, I, oh, oh boy. Hardwood Knox listeners, have you ever heard of DealDash.com? It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you'd never expect at a price you'd never believe. They have over 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that the auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, Everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item is yours. If you go ahead and buy now, DealDash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign-up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code NOX. Or go to DealDash.fm slash NOX. That's DealDash.fm slash NOX. D-E-A-L-D-A-S-H dot F-M slash NOX. Speaking of a potential East play-in tournament, uh, the Orlando Magic are next up. And so what's your what's your question for them? So similarly, they're in that bottom tier there. And I, I think it, it all centers around the progress that Markel Fultz is making. So he's, Ooh. if we're taking about, thinking about one player that we're really watching, honing in on, that's going to be important for us. Like, I'm really trying to figure out how sustainable Markel Fultz's offensive production can be on a high level. Like, Orlando doesn't have great shooting around him, and we know that he's struggled with his jump shot. That's that's why the Sixers didn't want him anymore. Um, but it, can he be productive nonetheless? Yes. Can he be productive on a team and in a system that is, by and large, built on like big, switchable wings and not great three-point shooters? That's kind of the missing piece to me. Yeah, I, I'm he's... I'm fascinated by him still, but I almost just feel like he doesn't have that swing factor to him anymore. Maybe if he, if his jump shot was a little bit more reliable, or you could get him, or if he was getting to the free throw line more, even. Um, I still just don't. It's not that I, I feel like he's a good NBA player. I just question whether all the stuff that's coming out of Orlando, they seem really high on him, and I just question whether he still has that um, capability to be like, let's say the you know, the third or, or fourth best player on, on, on a really, really good team. Yeah, it's it, he's a he's a different type of player, you know, like he's he's best in transition, he's best in the open floor, and you know, Orlando is the type of team that's gonna be a pretty sturdy defensive unit and gonna be able to, to rebound the ball and let him play in transition, but how they thrive in the half court, right now it's been heavily predicated on like set plays and 
and great coaching from Steve Clifford that they need to get a little bit more just who's going to go get a shot late clock and kind of create something for themselves or an easy look for somebody else. And it, it has to be false. So he's one guy that I'm just, I'm really curious to see how he's doing and, and what progress he's made over the last few months. And so I actually feel like it could be another player, which is my question for them is, is whether is, is Ken Aaron Gordon kind of like make that next little jump because his playmaking really improved. Um, towards the second part of this year. He's averaging five assists over his last 25 games. Um, a lot of that stuff, they've had him run some more pick-and-rolls, and Steve Clifford has complimented his decision-making out of the pick-and-rolls, but you know, he's even thrown better passes out of the post. Um, there's been times, you know, a, a lot of it, you know, it might be easier stuff where he's standing still and kind of surveying the floor and letting cuts develop or something like that, but he's thrown some nice passes on the move too. And so if, if, if he has that element of his game to where you're comfortable with him making plays for others, off the dribble, can we get something that approximates what you were just talking about, where it's, can he go get his own shot more consistently? He's not too efficient on drives. He's not efficient when he's pulling up off the dribble. And does any of that come together, or or is it too late for him? He was you know, shooting better on catch-and-shoot threes towards the end of this year, too. That actually feels like an annual thing for him, though. I have no statistical data <laughs> to back it up. But I still feel like there might be a more self-sufficient offensive player than we've seen to this point in there, particularly because of the strides he's made as a passer this year. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I'm more skeptical on like watching it and, and having that be the, the main impetus of, of the bubble for me is because I've put a lot of eggs in that basket before. And like <laughs> finally, he's finally proven that he's taken that step a little bit over the last few months of the season here. And, and I agree with you. He's, he is a very capable playmaker, but I don't see the kind of self-creation um, that he has in his arsenal where I think a lot of it is about the the angles, the two defenders that are put in a pick and roll when he's the ball handler, as opposed to him just being this great scoring threat that commands such great attention. And, and if Orlando is going to continue on their upward trajectory and not hit this like 40 win, 45 win ceiling over the next few years, they need somebody to step up and be that guy. Right, and that's like the big picture element of all this because if you don't find hints of that in Fultz uh, or you know Gordon during the bubble, I don't know really how they view Jonathan Isaac offensively, but he seems even further away from that type of player than than Aaron Gordon or Fultz at this point. And you have to start, you know, asking difficult questions about their future, which is why should we continue floating this forty to forty five win ceiling? At, at some point, it just becomes yeah. I know the. Orlando is it's a different market so if you're going to be in the playoffs there's value there but at the same time this feels like a team that could end up I won't say taking a stick of dynamite to its roster this summer though if I were the front office I might consider it but it does feel like I don't know that there's anything they could do in the bubble to change that um, but it does feel like they're going to have to undergo some sort of facelift again unless the player that we're both talking about now and you specifically emerges or you or you see something in faults or, or gordon that makes you believe that he might already be on the roster yeah yeah they're they're an interesting kind of long-term case study because you no know, i think a large part of them uh increasing their long-term ceiling comes down to guys like faults and bomba but i i also don't know if they're going to have enough offense long term even if those two guys hit their ceiling the brooklyn nets are next up currently seventh place in the Eastern conference. And there's, there's, they're in a similar situation to Washington with how many bodies they're missing, but there do seem to be, or no, it don't seem to be. There are to me, at least just a few more intriguing names here to monitor. What is your question for them entering the regular season restart? 
Oh boy. Um, I guess <laughs> who's going to play like, <laughs> you know, they're so depleted in the backcourt that I think a lot of it, what it comes down to, to me is, and, and this is more so for how it impacts the teams that they play, but how much zone are we going to see? I think a, a lot of times a, a big strategy that the teams will throw out there when they're shorthanded, they don't have as many NBA bodies, is they try to avoid foul trouble by playing zone defense. And with mm-hmm. Jared Allen in the middle, they can kind of funnel things towards him a little bit. And you know, Kenny Atkinson, when he was the head coach, was not shy about playing some zone defenses. So I'm wondering what Jacques Vaughn is going to do in terms of defensive strategy to make sure that they have enough healthy bodies on the floor to kind of finish this out because – I can't think of. Uh, I mean, their replacement players are testing positive and can't even play. So <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know what to make of their roster situation and how much of a threat they pose inside this bubble. It's just how creative are they going to get with kind of extending what they have? I, yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely that element to it. I went more. This is definitely big picture, but it's also because he's one of like the just the players I I remain so intrigued by is Karis Levert as the a lifeline right now is he able to play his way sort of into their future because right now I might default to I think they're going to move him um, if not this offseason at some point next year to try and get Katie and Kyrie a third star that just seems to be the direction that this franchise is all of a sudden traveling in but if he plays well enough can they can he be I, I don't know if you can say that he is the ceiling of a regular third star um, he might I mean he leads among everyone who's taking uh, at least th- three pull-up three-point attempts per game this year he leads the league um in efficiency on those shots he's hitting 41.5 percent of them we saw that he could knock those down in the playoffs where when ben simmons decided to delete d'angelo russell from the planet it was karis levert making a lot of shots for them and i know there's some concerns about his his efficiency you would like to see him get to the line more as well but if he does play well under these less than ideal circumstances does it get the nets thinking Again, not even necessarily that, hey, he's the third star, but is depth more valuable than going after that concrete right. third star now just because we don't know what KD is going to look like. We know that Kyrie Irving is going to be in and out of the lineup. And so while there's a case for star power there, you're then just more open to decimation by injuries if you consolidate this talent. And so I'm, you know, I don't know what their plans are for Jared Allen just because it seems like they value DeAndre Jordan more than him now. We, we know what Spencer Dinwiddie is at this point too. And Karis LeVert is that swing piece and if he if he plays well without any sort of safety nets around him uh no Dimwitty, no Kyrie, no KD I'm wondering if that gets the Nets front office thinking a little bit differently than it seems like they're thinking right now yeah I agree I agree I think that that's that's something to definitely watch here and he's going to have more than his fair share of opportunities to carry the offense so um you know the Again, short-term threat, don't know how much they have it, but um, there's a lot of long-term storylines in play, just in general in Brooklyn. They're a really fascinating franchise. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm fast, I am I like Karis LeVert as a passer, too, and you look at who's available, and it's like, who's he going to pass to? Like, okay, Joel right. Harris is there, Jared Allen's there. Um, I believe Garrett Temple's there. I can't keep up with who's missing from the Nets at this point, but it could, it could get really ugly. It probably will get really ugly, but yes, um, it... It could, and I think that you know, right now those three teams, and I've written about this a couple times at Celtics blog. Like two of those three teams that we've discussed so far are going to get playoff uh, series berths, and that makes getting one of the top two seeds in the Eastern Conference that much more impactful. So, like I know we'll touch on this later, but from a Celtics perspective, if you're chasing down the Raptors, uh, it may not be worth 
pushing Kemba Walker and his balky knee a little bit. But if you can get up to that two seed and draw a first round matchup with one of Brooklyn or Orlando or Washington, that's gonna that's gonna help you out a lot. Do you see a scenario like is there any way that the Wizards end up getting into the eighth spot? Anything can happen in Disney World, Dan. <laughs> I would probably say it would be if you had to pick one of the two incumbent playoff teams, it would have to be Brooklyn that you would pick to fall out instead of Orlando, right? Yeah, it has to be. Moving up, though, we have the currently six-seeded Philadelphia 76ers who are one of, if not the most polarizing team in the NBA. They have moved Ben Simmons to, to power forward, or a better way to put it, they have moved him more so off the ball. What is your question for them? So a question for the Philadelphia 76ers has to do with their new starting lineup where they've, you know, like you mentioned, adjusted things around. They're moving Al Horford out of that first unit, which is going to increase their spacing when they add a, a shooter in, in Shake Milton. And I guess my question for them uh, comes down to how much spacing it really provides and the pressure that it puts on the Simmons and Embiid uh, combination to kind of play together in in that spacing. Um, I, I think it's only going to help them, but certainly something really fascinating to watch long term because it's going to have ramifications on decisions that they make for those two and around those two. Right, and look, it puts pressure on Shake Milton too. I know it's just a spacing boost because you're you know displacing Hofford from the starting five and uh, putting in Shake Milton there, but he was on fire when the season sort of ended but he doesn't have a ton of just NBA reps under his belt and so there's still that high variance there and I'm also you know you being a coach could probably or can definitely speak to this better than I can I I don't like how much space does it actually create when when Simmons and Embiid are still um, on the court but they're both maybe off the ball on possessions where it was never really like that before yeah you know for me it it comes down to uh post-ups like Embiid needs the ball in the post, and when Simmons is out there, that's one non-shooter to kind of help off of. I think that they need the other three guys to be able to consistently knock down catch-and-shoot threats. And the kind of the catch-22 of this is the bigger the Sixers play, like when they had Horford at the four, and they put Simmons at more of a guard spot, they need him to take those size mismatches onto the interior. And if you have Embiid and somebody else who's a bigger body standing outside of them, then you're all of a sudden sucking away that space. So um, it, you know, yeah, you're almost damned if you do, damned if you don't. From a kind of a, a changing of of things at this bubble standpoint right now, because you risk losing a little bit of the chemistry and um, making that Al Horford contract look a little bit unnecessary. But a little fun. bit unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But it's something that they definitely have to try in order to see if they can maximize these two together because we're at the point where they're just kind of hitting this like three-seed type of ceiling and they need to be able to break through that. And so my question was basically similar to yours. Literally in my notes I have written, so like can this roster work? And yep. look, the, the numbers – they support what's happening uh, with the lineup right now because Philly's offense rates in the 93rd percentile when Simmons and Embiid play without uh, Horford on the floor. And then you were just talking about those Simmons-Horford lineups. When Embiid's not on the court, their offense is in the 84th percentile during those minutes. And so it, it, it seems like it, it will work or that it has worked against like pretty substantial sample sizes. We're talking about almost 2,000 possessions for the Simmons-Horford minutes without Embiid and then the... Uh, 
sub 800 possessions for Simmons and Embiid without Horford. But you need to also find a balance because you already brought it up. You can't have just given Al Horford that contract to be a, a 15 to 18 to 21 minute per game player. It just that's a huge amount of money, a huge resource to expend on someone who now you just want to play when Embiid's not on the floor. And yes, he provides you sort of with like this airtight safety net because we've seen them by and large win the minutes without Embiid on the court, which torpedoed their playoff chances last year, essentially. But you signed him. He has three years and $69 million guaranteed, $81 million total left on his deal. Like you, you can't pay that money for, I won't even say a heavily used bench player. This isn't Montrezl Harrell minutes that he'd be getting. If you really want to stagger them, we might be looking at Horford playing you know, 20, 22 minutes a game. And so it's going to be interesting to see how Brett Brown sort of toggles with, with these lineups and how much Embiid, Horford, Simmons together that we actually do see. Yeah, and and it's you know from even my perspective in looking at it, it, the Sixers have a first round draft pick and then like four or five second round selections this year, and how they deem their playing style best is going to impact the choices that they make in the draft with what players they see as long term fits and kind of the right flyers to take on people that can can make a short term and long term impact. So it's incredibly important that they at least get an answer for. How do we want to play? How do we believe we can play and win? Because they've been as talented as they are, top to bottom. They've been very slow and methodical on offense, and they have too many kind of, you know, that Embiid-Horford pairing can be a little bit difficult on in terms of perimeter defense. So they've got to shore up some things and just figure out what they want to commit to because right now it seems like what they've tried for the first – eight or nine months of the season since they signed Horford isn't what they want to commit to right now. Do you think in retrospect that it seems like a lot of people were high on the signing? I was probably more curious or I'll say verging on supportive of it. But in retrospect, it's like for a team that doesn't really run those pick and rolls, how was Horford ever going to be? You know, that's his, that's part of his you know bread and butter on offense where those pick and pops and those are just you know the number of screens he's setting and then those plays specifically they're just way down compared to what he was doing in boston yeah and pick and pops only work if people are going to fear and the big is going to help at all on a shooter who comes out off that ball screen and right now he doesn't really have a true pick and roll partner to go with that so um yeah it's it wasn't my favorite signing i get kind of why they did it because he's he was Embiid's foil, and I think that it would have given them Simmons at a guard spot, and he's in, in a vacuum, kind of this shooting big man, but he hasn't shot it great, and again, if he's shooting on high volume, that's a, a win for the defense. They, I'm, I, and they're also the team with like that high variance of outcomes, and we, we can mm-hmm. probably say this in the West almost annually, where it's you could envision a team making the finals or losing in the first round, but in the East, it's so rare, particularly when there is that power vacuum still, you know, there's Milwaukee at the top, but like it, the East still feels wide open. And yet with the Sixers, would it be shocking to see them come out of the East? Uh, maybe, probably not, but it also wouldn't be shocking if they just flamed out in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ultimate wild card. And, and again, they're not, not a team that I would want to play in the first round, which is why I'm thinking getting up to that two spot is going to be so valuable for whoever earns it. Uh, yeah. I agree with you there. If you're the Sixers though, who would you rather face the Raptors or the Celtics? I think uh, I think Boston. I think I'm with you there. 
there as well. They feel like they could really, and I I know it won't always work, and I might, I'd probably still pick Boston in that series, but there's like an element of they could really just like bully what is a, a smaller team to submission. And yet Boston's defense this year, you know, they have a top five offense and defense. They've just been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that it all comes down to kind of the size of Siakam at the four for Toronto, like his ability to, to he just matches up really, really well against Philly. So I'd, I'd, if I'm the Sixers, I'm hoping for, for Boston. The next team up, the fifth place Indiana Pacers. What is your question for them? And I feel like there's there could be a crap ton for this team at this point they, after the Sabonis news. Yeah, it's unfortunate news because he's had such a great year. Um, you know, for me, it's it's kind of the short term, long term debate because they're right on that borderline of how aggressively do we push, and since we're down here, we should make something out of it. Um, I want to know what they do with Victor Oladipo. So I know that's been something that is kind of up in the air in a lot of different different circumstances about how how heavily to rely on him. Is he going to actually get any minutes because he's decently healthy and returning to form? But, uh, you know, if they get into a close series, what does that look like for him? And, and that's just something that I'm really curious with as he recovers from his injuries. My stance would be that they just shouldn't play him at this point. You know, Sabonis yeah. is gone. It was a long shot for them to really do anything this year anyway. You're, you're missing Jeremy Lamb, and even if Oladipo plays, I know he started perking up on offense towards um, right before the NBA shut down, but, like, there still seems like a high variance of outcomes for him as well so i would just not play him at this point and my my initial question for them uh would have been you know what's their ceiling uh without oladipo and now it's could this like what is this what does this team do without sabonis and oladipo and you know my focus might be what what would it kind of look like if miles turner just had a ton of offensive responsibility and i i'm not saying i'm rooting for that but that would be interesting to watch and so I'm, I'm with you on the Oladipo one that would be my question is does he play how much does he play what happens from there what ends up being their ceiling during those minutes but um, to deviate I'm I'm wondering if both Oladipo and Sabonis are out or if Oladipo is super limited and then Sabonis is is out for the rest of the season even though we know he, he is still hoping to return like who does that benefit the most or who do we see pick up the the bulk of the opportunity that's available and I think it would be Miles Turner just because you can't really expand anything that Malcolm Brogdon is doing maybe you can ask for more from a Justin Holiday or a TJ Warren but I think a lot would fall on to, to Miles Turner in that situation yeah you you know maybe perhaps they they go that way I, I just I love Brogdon man like he's probably the most underrated player and like dude had a 50 40 90 year last year and like no one talks about it he's just he's so good he's been banged up a bunch of times too this year yeah. they've not had the best luck best luck with injuries this season yeah, yeah. So they're uh, again. There's just so many teams are not themselves as they get down here in Orlando, and unfortunately, that's going to be kind of a, a last man standing type of mentality as we get all the way to probably the conference semifinals or or maybe even the conference finals. But it's just it's unfortunate all the injuries, all the the difficulty that they've had keeping their core on the on the court together because it's a, a really really talented fun one. And look, now you're at the point where you're not even going to get. I think the Sabonis Turner fit—they've made it work, but it could be better. And now you're just—you know—you're being robbed of yet a more more sample size with those two on the court. If Sabonis misses the rest of the year or or most of it, and then Victor Oladipo is going to be a free agent in 2021, he can sign an extension too. And if he doesn't play or if he's super limited, it just makes um, deciding how to handle your imminent future so much harder. And maybe that always would have been the case because. 
as you just said, most of these teams just aren't their sel- themselves, even if they have most of their right. personnel available. But that's still just like, I, I just reconciling their future now becomes so much tougher following this Sabonis injury. Agree. Sports are back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. Major League Baseball is finally kicking off, and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, Bet Online sat down with former pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Horry. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans in a series they're calling Fandemic. Visit betonline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. The Miami Heat, number four in the Eastern Conference. I, I would say that's probably a pleasant surprise for, for most, or at least them being 17 games under 500. I'm not sure that's something many people saw coming. It certainly wasn't what I saw coming. What's your question for them? Oof. So I think probably the, the under-the-radar um, statistic of the year is that Jimmy Butler has shot 24.8% from three on almost two and a half attempts a game like he he is really struggling from downtown and despite that Miami is first in team three-point percentage so like their entire game (laughs) is predicated on the spacing around him and they would be so light years ahead on offense if he was up to his normal like 32 33 percent so I guess for me like I don't know if it's tailored at one player or the whole team but are they going to be able to live by the three, die by the three the way that they have? Because, again, top team in three-point percentage throughout the, the first part of the season before the interruption. And they give up the fewest uh, two-point field goal attempts per game. So, like, they, they take a ton of threes. They force a ton of threes. And it works for them. Right. But they need to bank on their shooting remaining hot. Jimmy's getting better. And other teams having kind of a cold streak when they enter the bubble, which is something that at least through the first couple scrimmages we're seeing. Like, it's going to take a while for rhythm for jump shooters to come back. The way that Jimmy Butler is still able to just get to the foul line roughly roughly a trillion times per game, despite, like, his complete absence of a jump shot this year is pretty incredible. Yeah. My question for them is, how does the integration of Andre Godala and Jay Crowder end up going? And, you know, they had a small sample leading into the, the NBA's hiatus but they were pretty rigidly staggering the minutes of jimmy butler and and iguodala and i'm wondering if that would change at all in the postseason do they try and expand iguodala's role or is he going to be a sub 20 minutes per game player for them uh i you know the way they were kind of staggering justice winslow at the beginning of the year from jimmy butler are they going to run into the same issues with iggy and butler should they try to play them together with crowder specifically he was shooting the ball very well um upon arriving in miami but you have him at the four, and does that work with Bam Adebayo at the five? Because as good as Bam Adebayo is, I don't you know putting him in the middle. I feel like doesn't really guarantee you a great defense. And in the time that he's already spent with Crowder, the the Heat are coughing up more than 119 points uh, per 100 possessions and almost 65 percent shooting at the rim. Again, it's it's a small sample, but if you're trying to go with the look, where I feel like they're probably better off looking at their roster having that smaller four on the court, um, particularly when they're closing games. I want to see how that ends up doing defensively. And then back to Iguodala for a second, does he close games for them? I think the gut 
decision gut feeling right now i guess would be no but at the same time it's like well isn't that kind of why you you brought him in and so i'm just very interested to see how both of these players are used and how miami ultimately fares yeah yeah uh, it's you know they're a type of team that has so many different um i guess types of pieces that they can play that are like and good nba caliber rotation players but in any combination that they put of them on the floor there's going to be some weakness and I guess it's about Taylor making that to an opponent, guessing right on opponent rotations and schemes and, and really coming up with a game plan to maximize every single player and how they fit together. Like I love Duncan Robinson. I think Kelly Olynyk is kind of underrated in a lot of senses because he just produces when he's out there, but they have limitations on the types of things that they can do on the floor when they trot, like you say, at a bio Crowder lineup or Olynyk at the four or you know Myers Leonard at the four like there there are different things that they can't do as a result and you look at you know their best perimeter defenders i would probably say their four best even though Crowder has been shooting really well since arriving in Miami like they're not actual great shooters just looking mm-hmm. at Jimmy Butler, Derek Jones Jr., obviously, and then Jay Crowder and Iguodala. And so you're talking about their three-point clips, and it, all, it almost just feels like something doesn't add up there. And so does that come back to, you know, is there going to be, is that luck in any way? Because I know Duncan Robinson is a great shooter, but but does that end up translating against postseason defenses? Right, right. Yeah, they just, to me, they have literally 13 guys, 12 guys that they could throw in there and give solid playoff rotation minutes to. But Outside of Adebayo and, and Butler, I don't know who I trust on both sides of the of the, of the ball right now. Yeah, that, that that that's definitely a good point. And my, Derek Jones Jr. might actually be the closest just because of what he can do in transition. But the complete like absence of, of a jump shot also kind of kills him there. Number three in the East, though, the Boston Celtics. Um, I'm interested to see what your question is for them now because I feel like I know what it is. Yeah, so I mean, we've we hinted at it a little bit earlier that a, a lot of um, a lot of this comes down to different tiers, and I think now we're in that tier of three teams who are like legitimate threats to go through the Eastern Conference and, and challenge for the NBA NBA Finals, no matter what their matchups are and who they they face. So, with Boston, a lot of it comes down to the seeding games. A lot of it comes down to essentially just Kemba Walker's health and how much his knee becomes a postseason storyline because if it he's able to play and push through and help propel them up to maybe the two seed where they catch Toronto, uh, that gives them a far different path, but it also could have long-term ramifications. Vice versa, if they don't and they stay pretty steady in their three spot, does you know does a rested Kemba mean that they're going to be able to get past uh, Philadelphia and Indiana in the first round without any any issues. So just so many questions about Kemba right now that I'm, I'm not very comfortable with all the information that we've seen that's been out there right now. Yeah, that knee is, uh, if he ends up missing time or just isn't himself and struggling, that ends up being huge because I think Boston's so intriguing, at least to someone like me, because they're the best pull-up jump shooting team in the NBA by effective field goal percentage. Kemba's a part of that, Jason Tatum obviously as well. And that would be my question, um, since you took the, the Kemba Walker one, is I personally think this this season, looking at the stars that were absent or didn't play uh, a ton of minutes, you can say that Jason Tatum added close to top 10 value in the league. And I don't think that that's a hot take. Um, is he ready now, though, to be that best player on a viable championship contender? And that's not, I think people have 
sort of underplayed his rise where they think he just played really well for a month. And it's really just been most of this season. He's been fantastic for them, even the things that he's able to do on defense. And I, you know, we've seen him play well in in the playoffs before, but like the circumstances are just different because this is just officially his team, his offense. And now you have more pressure on him. If Kemba Walker is, is limited or if if his shots just aren't falling at their normal clip. And I don't think this is a case where he needs to validate his stardom. I think that he has done that, but is he, you know, are we still a year or two out from him being the number one on a team that we can say will or can actually win the title. And so contention in the East is sort of fickle because there are so many teams that you can envision uh, coming out of the conference. But if you pit them against the Clippers or the Lakers, I think their cases look a lot different. Um, just because, you know, or the Bucks, obviously, you know, can can Boston be the biggest problem to Milwaukee? A lot of that falls on Jason Tatum's shoulders as well. And so I'm very interested, the word that I keep coming back to during this podcast, to see what he ends up doing in the postseason. And I don't know, he'll be, he'll be people will be critical of him either way, but you almost hope um, just from an objective standpoint to, that we get like a sample that we can really read into. You want Ken Walker to be fully healthy, uh, because I, that's going to help make sure that he's operating, uh, Tatum's operating under normal circumstances, so that he's not, you know, shouldering um, a heavier burden than he normally would. And and so they're just going to be with that Kembenia, as you already mentioned, as the wild card. They're just going to be a team that a, a ton of eyes are going to be on entering the postseason. Yep, I agree. And like, I don't think that they need Kemba for necessarily offensive production like I think their offense like you said is going to be fine because Tatum has risen to that level now but they just don't they don't have the perimeter depth like they have five guys that can play on the perimeter with Kemba Smart Hayward Jalen and and Jason like they they really only have those five guys that you trust in a playoff series Wanamaker can spot you like six to eight minutes Um, right and and without Kemba it just stretches everybody else so thin that I worry more about what it does to their second unit minutes when they elevate Marcus Smart into that first group, as as opposed to, oh, what's their offense going to look like? Where are they going to score? How are they going to make shots? Like Now it's just they're going to have some empty calories on the floor as a result, and typically you don't win an NBA championship or make it to the NBA Finals with that. I uh, w- First of all, one of my favorite stats this season is that Marcus Smart is shooting north of 40% on pull-up three-pointers, which is just amazing, and it's on like actual volume too. But I'm almost wondering, you know, you, I totally agree with the depth point, but I am sort of wondering if Kemba Walker is so important to what they do offensively because who aside from Tatum are you trusting to just go out and get you that shot from scratch? And I do feel like you need that sort of one-two punch in the playoffs, and Jalen Brown really isn't that player. Like, he can put pressure on the rim, but he's not going to, you know, face up and hit these difficult jumpers, or he's not going to really... He can initiate maybe his own offense, but he's not going to be the table setter for anyone else that falls on you know marcus mark can do some of that but his off the dribble jumper will just say is, is high variance might be the be- most complimentary way to say yeah. this and so i kind of feel like just how boston's generated a ton of its offense this season that kemba ends up being really important to their just raw production too yep yeah i agree that brings us to number two in the east the toronto raptors what is your question for them so I don't know if it's a question for them as much as it is a question for us, but are we sleeping on the Toronto Raptors again? Like (laughs) This team is really good, and it's so easy to just dismiss it as, well, they don't have Kawhi Leonard anymore. Like 
they are so good top to bottom in every every regard. They're well coached. Their offense is tremendous and well spaced, simplistic. Everybody shoots it. Everybody makes the right play. They have fantastic kind of principles and tendencies as opposed as in terms of like extra passes and how they share and move the ball. They're really tight defensively in a lot of ways. They have length. They have strength. It's hard to like individually mismatch them one-on-one because everybody is a, a solid or above average defender. Like, I don't know what the hole is on this team. And for me, like, I'm, I'm hoping and waiting for Pascal Siakam to be the guy who steps up and like takes the reins in the series away from Kyle Lowry doing a lot of the offensive creation. Mm-hmm. I think Siakam's probably ready for that. So if I were to kind of come up with one question about them, I guess it's, is, is he ready to be that guy? But to me, the answer is yes. And like, they're just, they are such a solid, well-built all around team. Yeah. I respect that head coach Nick Nurse has really tried to, I don't want to use the word force, but he's like left Siakam in that initiator role at times, even when it wasn't going well, because they're so clearly focused on, yeah, they're good now, but like they need him to be that player for the future. And so I'm with you. He's to me, he's closer to ready than not yep Yep. my question for them um is what the half court offense ends up looking like in the playoffs because i feel like their offense overall this year was floated by a ton of transition volume which is absolutely great but i feel like those opportunities can be tougher to come by in the in the postseason or at least defenses will make more adjustments to it or be better prepared for it particularly over the course of an, an entire series and they just don't really have you know, when you're looking at the pick and rolls that they're going to run, they don't have someone who's going to put a ton of pressure on the rim. And, you know, Kyle Lowry's never really been that player. Uh, Fred Van Fleet, you know, more of that player, but a questionable finisher there. And so I'm wondering if we, you know, they were mediocre to begin with offensively. They're 18th in points scored per half-court possession this season. And I'm just wondering if if they have the potential to suffer an, an even larger drop-off. I, I think it helps that... Um, you know, they're top 10 in both three-point volume and efficiency, but there just feels something off or missing from their from their offense still. And a lot of that just might come down to, you know, the Pascal Siakam question is going to matter too, is, you know, can he put a ton of pressure on the rim coming out of pick and rolls? How much um, do defenses respect his pull-up jumper? And if they're going to give it to him, is he going to hit it at a high clip? And so that might take care of some of it, but their their half court offense in general. I'm very interested to see how it ends up playing out now that they don't have Kawhi Leonard in this situation. Yeah, and I, I mean the, one of the reasons why that's not a huge concern for me. I'll I'll just kind of give you two two points here. One, everybody in their normal rotation shoots it above 33, 34 percent from three. Like everybody is very good. Looking at the page, Lowry's 35, Van Vliet's 39, Siakam 36, and Anobi 38. Powell, 40, Gasol, 40, Ibaka, 40, uh, Terrence Davis, 40. Like Everybody that they have shoots it from a really high percentage from three, and that helps space the floor. The other thing, which is the second point, their two center kind of combinations of Gasol and Ibaka are both 40%. And what that does in a postseason series, it'll suck the rim protection away from the basket and help kind of their field goal efficiency at the rim. And that's really, I think, where postseason games are, are won and lost like obviously the difficulty of creating points and manufacturing clean looks go it, it the difficulty's insane in the postseason mm-hmm. and what you need to do is be able to convert at the rim and convert on your on your three-point attempts when you get them and i, I just i see from both a, a statistical standpoint and the theoretical of who their shooters are especially at the five spot 
it's just their offense is going to be fine in my book. And maybe I'm just underestimating, uh, you know, them also having, you know, Norman Powell has been really good on offense this year. And so just the, the element of having so many options. Another question I would have for them, this is more so for the people that are going to be watching the games, is what is the player on this team where, where, you know, national fans, people who didn't follow the Raptors closely throughout the regular season, come away realizing they're really good. And so it's like below the Siakam, even Van Fleet um, tier, where it's, is it Norman Powell? Is it Terrence Davis, who I think needs to get more playing time than, than he was receiving uh, when the league closed its doors? Uh, is it you know, Chris Boucher? Like it, there's, this is going to be an awakening for people who didn't follow the Raptors uh, closely, and I'm just wondering what player really sort of sways them. You know, yeah. Ananobi, too. So that's going to be sort of the, the reactions to the Raptors, I think, are going to be fun to monitor. I agree. Yeah, and I, I love all those guys. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see which one steps up. Yeah, it's tough to, like, pick. I, th- as someone who's not really a fan of any team, even though I grew up a Knicks fan, I become emotionally attached to like one, two, or three teams a year. And, and this year, that was the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Raptors, just because even if you expected both of them to remain intact for the full season, just neither of them were supposed to be at this level. And the Raptors specifically, I thought I was higher on them than most when I predicted I think that they would finish fourth in the East. And they're just, they're second right now. Yeah. And so the race with the Celtics definitely matters, but like they also have a three game lead in the loss column. Yeah, they're, they're really, really good, Dan. The Bucks, number one. What is your question for them? It's uh, so a lot of this comes down to this theory that I have that um, Mike Budenholzer has this reputation, and I don't know how deserving it is, but he has this reputation that he's not willing to adjust in postseason series. That he has the way that he wants to do things, his system, his structure on both ends of the floor. And they're going to stick to it. If they go down, they're going to go down swinging with that identity. And for me, I think that you know, postseason Giannis is a lot easier to defend than regular season Giannis because you can really predict Milwaukee's uh, rotations and kind of decide who you want to put on them. Like if you're going to put a smaller guy, like I've always advocated for the Celtics, putting Marcus Smart on him and trying to crowd his dribble so that he's just. He's not keeping it too attached to him. You can put a bigger guy on him and put one of your smaller ones guarding like Brooke Lopez in a shooter and say, hey, I dare you to take me down into the post and I'm going to help heavily and and you know we're just going to beat, beat the crap out of Giannis physically. So there are a lot of different ways the teams might try to, to play uh, Giannis. And what I'm curious to see to kind of wrap this long-winded question up is – how Budenholzer tinkers with his lineups and schemes to um, directly counter the way that their postseason opponents defend Giannis. Yeah, that is the biggest criticism with him, and I do believe he's at least shown more flexibility than people probably credit him for. I mean, Chris Middleton might even be an example where, you know, this season they let him, like, take more of those mid-rangers that he's both comfortable with and and really good at. Maybe that's not the best evidence, but it at least shows some, you know, uh, I like just malleability there. Uh, there, you bring up this wasn't my question for them. That's why I'm like stumbling through it because it's like it's so interesting to to think about the the way it comes back to what you mentioned about um, Giannis and how you think that he's easier to defend in the postseason. That's something I've sort of harped on when people say that they don't think Chris Middleton is like this real number two. And I'm like, this is coming from someone who uh, rated Giannis as the best player in the league this year so it's not that I don't like Giannis but 
isn't there a chance that if Chris Middleton isn't enough as the number two on this team that it says more or at least just as much about Giannis? Because would you say that LeBron can't win a title with Middleton as his number two or Kawhi with Middleton as his number two? And that the, the bigger problem might be that Giannis is potentially easier to defend in the postseason than it is that, oh, Chris Middleton can't carry the Bucks completely when Giannis is struggling. Yeah, look, Giannis being easier to guard in the postseason doesn't mean he's easy to guard. Like, he's well, still... Uh, yeah the toughest matchup in the NBA but when you are in a post and we saw it with Toronto last year it's why they beat the Bucks. they loaded up their entire defensive strategy on Giannis and forced him different directions played blocks and elbows coverage where they were just really blanketing any drive that he made in the middle third of the floor and if you can create a scheme like that that you're gonna just hammer home you know night in night out for two weeks it, it can be impactful. Um, so I think it's incumbent not just on Giannis and Middleton to be the guys that are producing and carrying the offense despite that, but it's on Budenholzer to say, like, okay, if they're going to do this and they're going to put a smaller guy on Brooke Lopez, like maybe we need to go a little bit smaller and play Giannis in those death lineup minutes at the five. Like They have destroyed four. opponents during those minutes this year too. They they have. And, and again, I don't think Budenholzer is inflexible. I think that's a – a, a pretty unfair reputation that he has, but it's certainly um, in, in the postseason a lot harder to commit to and a lot more noticeable when something like that happens. So we'll see uh, exactly, you know, again, how he plans to counter the teams that have those uh, Giannis rules, so to speak, for them in the, in the playoffs. And so you kind of touched on what my question was, and that is how are. Eric, I think you could focus on Eric Bledsoe specifically because he's been so bad on offense the past two postseasons, basically. Uh, but how are Eric Bledsoe and Brooke Lopez going to shoot it? Because one of the things that maybe isn't talked about enough, at least nationally, is that Brooke Lopez is just not shooting well from three this year. 29.2% on wide-open three-pointers. Uh, and yeah. those account for a great deal of his three-pointers. And he can do other stuff, and he's become, it's amazing, it feels like as he's aged, like he's just become more matchup-proof on on defense, or at least people have appreciated him there more. But if he's not hitting his threes, and then you're dealing with Bledsoe, who's still you know barely shooting 35% on wide open threes himself this year, those open up other questions for the team. And one of them might be, do we need to go, as you already mentioned, smaller with Giannis at the five? But you also just need um, to have other shot makers on this team. And do you have the guts to be like, well, we're going to take Bledsoe's all defense off the court? Um, and then we're going to roll with George Hill, or can Dante DiVincenzo maybe fill like a little bit of every gap because that's what it seems like he does for this team. And so the the three point efficiency from Bledsoe and, and Brolo, I think, is going to end up being um, not only huge for what the lineups look like on the floor, but just Milwaukee in general throughout the postseason. Yeah, yeah, they. I mean, they're a team that because of how Giannis plays, they have to make shots, and they've done so at a blistering pace the last two seasons, and that's why they've been so good on offense. But, um, you know, I hate to say that it all comes down to shooting, but in in effect, like your success, it it all comes down to can you put the ball in the basket? Like, are you going to make the shots that you get? Do you think Giannis has added enough depth to his? shot selection that he's now a little bit harder to defend just because he's more inclined to take pull-up threes now and he seems more confident um in you know his his stop and fades and those are shots that are not being downed at a high clip but i'm wondering if 
ring if him taking them in higher volume at all helps or if it really just doesn't matter unless they're they're falling at a more consistent clip yeah i I think i think it helps um i just again i'm not one who plays defense solely based on the numbers um but I, i think the thing that's hurting him a little bit is like he's not converting when he gets to the free throw line as much as he has his free throw percentage has has dipped quite a bit this year so whether it's like an over-reliance on fixing and tweaking and thinking about his shooting mechanics like something is not kind of uh not carrying over from there to the free throw line right now and and when he's more aggressive when he goes to the rim a little bit more confidently and and uh you know I think that there's there's a certain level of focus that you get when you get to the free throw line as a result of that. And when you take a ton of jump shots, it can, can wane a little bit because you lull yourself into thinking that you're in this rhythm and it's okay. Like he still needs to be a guy that his mechanics aren't great. He needs to focus on every shot. So um, again, it, it, it's nitpicky. Like he's the best player in the world right now. And I don't I, I don't think that's too much up for debate. Like he's he's become such an unbelievably good individual defender. Mm-hmm. He's a terror in transition. He takes ten free throws a game. Like he's a nightmare to guard. Um, but if we're talking about you know s- splitting hairs and trying to figure out exactly what teams are going to do to them in the postseason, so that they you know they minimize the impact that he has he has to find a way to overcome that. And whether that's through playmaking and passing to others who knock down shots, or like you mentioned, having that confidence in his jumper to take them when they dare him and make them, uh, he needs to be the one that steps up and makes those right plays. Yeah, the free throw shooting is an interesting point. And it's, it's one of those things that you know, but at least for me, I, I just like keep forgetting about. 63.3% at the foul line. And then again, he didn't shoot it well in the playoffs last year, 63-7 from the foul line. And so you definitely, with the amount that he attacks the rim and then does get to the line. You don't want to be put in a position where teams might just be inclined to even try and foul him um, later in games. His free throw percentage isn't that low, but right. you know, 63-7 for an entire season, 63-3, excuse me, uh, that's super low, and it's you know, like a nine-point, almost a nine-point drop-off from from last season. And look, all this stuff matters. Nitpicking, I think, is fair here because he is super max eligible, can be a free agent in 2021 if he doesn't sign it. You have to ask these questions and if the bucks don't come out of the east um i think they'll be subject to either you know they're going to be subject to scrutiny no matter what happens unless they win the title but if if you don't come out of the east after the season that you just had i I know they're extenuating circumstances but that's when you have to look at i don't think you move him that's not something i would do i would just let his free agency plays out unless he demands a trade but you do have to look at making changes to the roster i don't know what those necessarily could be i've been an advocate of you know since last summer that i thought like go out and try and trade for for chris paul um it's just they have to give up so many of their players to make the math work um but if you don't come out of the east after the season that you had like that's the type of change that you're you're gonna have to be looking at yeah so uh, i mean i'm i'm all in on on Giannis staying there for the rest of his career i don't i don't think milwaukee should ever consider um not bringing out the the brinks truck and backing it up for him but uh, you know, it's just the postseason and the regular season are not always the same game. And that's that's where that diversity of skills that you have, you have to be good at a lot of different things. And Giannis is great in so many areas, but he still does fall short in a couple uh, couple ways. And that's his perimeter shooting, how he converts at the free throw line, and just with the size that he has and the, the types of role players they have around him, there are ways to, um, to kind of, choose what shots the Bucks take for them. 
Spins, this was great. I appreciate you giving me so much of your time. Always love talking to someone who knows the game as well as you do. Uh, once more, if you guys are not following Adam on Twitter, find him at Spinella14, spelled exactly as it sounds. Finally, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you're consuming your podcast if you have not done that already. Uh, but Spins, once again, thank you so much for the conversation. And as you know, as I always tell you, I will most definitely be pestering you again in the future. We'll be back. Always love being here. Always great to talk to you, Dan. Thank you. And uh, hoops are back, baby. So we'll be, we'll be having some fun now. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.